And now, it's time for Lawyers for Jesus Radio, lighting our path through law. A show about faith in the law and in the marketplace. Featuring the partners from the law firm Mock & Baker. Located in downtown Chicago, Mock & Baker is nationally known for defending freedom and protecting the rights of the broken and religiously oppressed. And now, Lawyers for Jesus. Good afternoon. Welcome to Lawyers for Jesus Radio. I'm Rich Baker, together here with my partner, Noel Starrett, and we are partners at the law firm of Mauk and Baker in Chicago. We are Christian attorneys that focus on serving the body of Christ with all of its legal needs. We do everything from zoning to estate planning, not-for-profit administration to religious freedom. You can find out more about us by going to our website at maukbaker.com. That's M-A-U-C-K. B-A-K-E-R.com, or call us at 312-726-1243. You can also follow us on Facebook and, twi- and uh, Twitter to keep up in, with the developments that are taking place in faith and law. Today, I'm here with my partner, Noel, and we will be discussing a recent case from Rhode Island. It involves a church, the King's Tabernacle, and its fight with the municipality for it to have the right to meet in a 124-year-old church. They found themselves being told by the city that they couldn't meet there because they didn't meet the zoning code needs. Noel, tell us about this case. Yeah, this is, uh, unfortunately, it's not a unique case. Uh, as you know, Rich, you've been handling zoning cases with municipalities uh, for decades. Um, we have found an increasing number of municipalities as the uh, you know, revenue goes short. Uh, they look at churches kind of as a pariah on the community. These churches are taking property off of tax, uh, the tax rolls. And uh, there's other reasons. And, and the King's Tabernacle uh, case is particularly troubling because it involved a racial element as well. Uh, this case involved uh, King's Tabernacle. It's a small uh predominantly African-American congregation led by Pastor Chris Sabulame. They were looking to have a new location set up in Johnston, Rhode Island. It has about 30,000 people in the town just uh, north of uh, Providence. And when they went, they found kind of the perfect spot. Here you are, a white steepled church, 124-year-old church, had been used for religious assembly for over a century, and they wanted to move in. So, you know, as the pastors typically do, they get the congregation excited. They say, we found the property. We're, you know, led by the Lord to buy it. So they bought it in April of 2015. Uh, they got it under contract and they got ready to go build and, and, and uh, fix things up and, you know, dust off the, the windowsills and uh, put on new drapes. And then when they went to the building code official and the zoning official, they realized that something was up. Now, Noel, you're indicating that this isn't the first time you've seen something like that with churches. What, what's been your experience? Well, we've uh, at Malcolm Baker, we have the privilege of representing churches all across the country uh, that are denied zoning. Now, zoning is kind of a dry subject, typically, but increasingly, we are finding that zoning and building code issues are, are kind of at the forefront of uh, the religious liberty battle in this country. Now, you say that's a dry concept. It may be until it's your church. Sure. And it may be until some uh, government official tells you that you can't meet there for 
uh, petty reasons. What Have you found that true in the Chicago area as well? Sure, definitely in Chicago and, and elsewhere. I mean, what we have are municipal officials who are looking to um, almost always increase the economic development of their community. That's that's the primary goal. Where do we get jobs? Where do we get tax revenue? Where do we grow our community? But there are very few. I haven't seen one yet where a municipality has a conservative effort to say, how are we going to do our zoning in such a way as to increase and encourage the religious assembly and religious liberty needs of the citizens within the municipality? Well, how would you respond to a, a, a bureaucrat that said, you're taking a, a property off the tax rules, you're actually a pariah on the community? What do you say to that? Well, I think that's a, a short-sighted view of this. I think if you actually look in the University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Ram Kanan did a study and said, look, religious assemblies, churches, actually contribute economically to a municipality or a community in much broader ways than just the uh, the pennies that you would get from the property tax that is lost. Well, give me an example of that. How do they benefit? Well, you've got uh, Dr. Ramkanan uh, studied things such as uh, schools and religious ministries to the teens and the youth, keeping kids out of jail, um, correcting and supporting marriages. As we know, marriage and the family is one of the most critical uh, building blocks of uh of America and of our communities. And when the family's intact and when the kids are, 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 are supported and they can access the services that a lot of churches provide, the community saves. The community is able to uh, have, be a, a community of families and um, mentored and discipled youth. And those are just a number of areas. There's, there's a countless other ways in which churches serve uh, the homeless, the drug addicts, uh, and the all of which take community resources. And so when I look at a municipality and I hear something saying, oh, you know, we can't let you in here because we don't want to lose the tax revenue, I say, wow, how sad, how short-sighted. For, you know, $5,000 a year, you're losing a church. This is Lawyers for Jesus Radio. I'm Rich Baker here with Noel Sterrett, partners with the law firm of Malkin Baker. We're here speaking about zoning and churches and the incredible impact that churches have in the communities that are in. Noel, continue. Tell us about this case, this um, King's Tabernacle case. How does how did that result? Yeah. So what happened was when Pastor Chris uh, went to the zoning official, he was told look, we don't have anywhere in Johnston where a church can locate as of right. We've got our old churches, you know, the, the Catholic church down the corner, the ones that have existed here forever, but you're a new church. And uh, so you're going to have to go to the zoning board and ask for a special exception. Now, Pastor Chris, uh, in like most pastors, uh, wanted to be deferential. I've never met a pastor who's out looking for a lawsuit. I, I've met a lot of pastors, however, that are willing to bend over backwards to um, basically comply with whatever demands that the municipality has. So what were the demands of this municipality? They were just saying, look, you, you can't just come in here and start, you know, doing church where somebody's been doing church for 124 years. You got to come before our board. You got to go hire an attorney. You get a, all the plans prepared, thousands of dollars and months of uh, uh, hearings, et cetera, come before us, and then we'll uh, review your special permit. Well, you say come before us. Now, doesn't the zoning uh, board require that of everybody? Why are churches so special? Well, sometimes uh, if you're a permitted use, if you're a resident, for example, you can buy a home and just use it. You don't have to go to the city council to get permission. 
And that's what a permitted use is. But what increasingly I'm seeing are municipalities that don't have anywhere where a church can go in as a permitted use. Now, what that does is it effectively creates a system by which the city council can act as a gatekeeper for who they want in and who they want out, which is dangerous when you talk about religious and race. And that's what's going on also in the King's Tabernacle case. Well, you've mentioned race. How did that come up in this particular case? Well, in this case, it was uh, pretty apparent from the start. Uh, When Pastor Chris and his congregation would visit the property, they would have people driving by and taking pictures. They would have an official from the city come by and, and basically threaten to have them arrested if they're on their own property. Uh, They also had, uh, they realized things were up when the neighbors showed up to all the meetings. And so this is a predominantly uh, white community, I think 97% uh, white. And when they went to the actual hearing, a significant amount of numbers of the neighbors showed up. And without comment or question from the board, anything um, substantive, they presented their application. It was pretty obvious. Everybody knew it was a church. And they said, we want to use it as a church. And the neighbor said, well, we have our own attorney. We want to talk about our objections. The board looked at them and said, your objections noted, didn't allow comment, didn't ask any questions, and then voted 5-0 to deny this church. 5-0. So the pastor's sitting here asking questions. Why us? Why can the white church use this same property, this church with steeple, the whole nine yards, for 120 years, but we come in and we're not allowed to? Well, what ended up happening was after they were denied, uh, the zoning official was caught on video uh, by the uh, church's contractor making racially derogatory and discriminatory remarks about the church's black ownership. Now, that is just a terrible thing. This is 2016. And as Pastor Chris said, though the laws have changed, the heart of man remains the same. And so that's uh, that's part of the case, and and then it was ended up filing, and it languished in. Well, state before court, you go but, on with that, yeah, you're a you're a Chicago attorney. What are you doing in Rhode Island? How did how did you get involved in this case? Well, as you know, Rich uh, John Mauk, uh, who uh, you and John founded the firm, uh, John got involved along with you in many of the zoning cases here in Chicago. Well, due to the ways in which the churches in the Chicagoland area had been persecuted. All of that became the evidence upon which Congress, the United States Congress in 2000, passed the Religious Land Use Act, a federal law protecting churches in cases just like this, providing them immediate protection against discriminatory zoning uh, powers. And so we have been blessed with the privilege, based on the foundation that uh, John and, and you uh, laid, uh, to now take these cases across these co- the country, because the federal law is the same, no matter where we go. And so we take these cases, we work with the local council, we bring suit, and we try to open up the doors of these churches as soon as we can. So this case in Rhode Island was filed January 25th. And after the break, I would really like to tell you how this case went down in just under a month, what God was able to do through the work of both the attorneys of Malcolm Baker, some local attorneys, and really through the prayers of the congregation and the others that pray to support the work uh, at Malcolm Baker. You're listening to Lawyers for Jesus, uh, attorneys of Malcolm Baker. You can reach us, 312-726-1243. Look us up online, malkinbaker.com, M-A-U-C-K-B-A-K-E-R. After the break, I'll tell you more about how this King's Tabernacle case was resolved and what how God showed up.
Welcome back to Lawyers for Jesus Radio. I'm Rich Baker, together here with Noel Sterrett, partners with the law firm of Malkin Baker. And we're talking about a very important case coming out of Rhode Island. It's called King's Tabernacle versus Johnson City, Rhode Island. And in that case, the city had determined that this black congregation could only meet with special use permission, which they denied. Noel, tell us how you got involved in it and what the outcome was. So after the church was denied zoning, uh, their local attorney, uh, who I don't think was that familiar with the federal law, the Religious Land Use Act that I do and uh, our partners at law, Malkin Baker, use uh, to protect churches, uh, just filed a regular appeal in state court. And uh, if anybody knows how the courts go, uh, typically, uh, you know, appeal like that just takes time. And so here you are, you have a small African-American congregation that was denied zoning. Well, they feel the pressure of that. They know that their civil rights are being infringed, and yet they languish. Their freedom is being denied day in, week in, week out. Uh, Congregation grows discouraged. Um, The youth in the church are wondering, you know, well, if this is a racially uh, discriminatory thing, you know, didn't Martin Luther King correct this? Uh, Isn't there something we can do? How long do we have to wait? What's going on? And so when I uh, received a call from Pastor Chris, uh, because we, we handle these cases across the country, I realized that I was dealing with a very discouraged congregation, uh, a pastor who's trying everything he could. He's not a full-time pastor. He works for a living. Um, and he's got a, um, a family that he goes to at home. And in, the, in, in a side time, he leads the small congregation. And he was giving everything he had, cutting into family time to to try to keep this church afloat and try to keep this church's dreams of opening in this property available. So he reached out to me. Uh, and then, uh, so what we do is as soon as we get these cases, we move as fast as we can. Now, why have you learned to move as fast as you can? What's the strategy there? Well, I think typically when, as an attorney, you always have to put yourself in the shoes of the client. You can just handle the case and, and figure out when the deadlines are and file things, you know, when the deadlines come. But that's not really understanding what it means to be in the client's shoes. The client is sitting under the weight of this. And so you move as fast as you can. You don't, it doesn't take you, uh, it doesn't advantage the client any uh, to wait until, you know, just to let the process take its course. If there's ways you can fast forward the process, that's what I do. All right. So how do you do that? How do you fast forward a process? I've always thought that law takes forever. Well, it can. And uh, there's no promises that that it won't. There's no guarantees that it won't. But we've learned uh, just ways in which we can put everything up front. So what I typically do is rather than taking all my time and kind of slow dripping the case, I try to figure out, well, how can I hit them with everything? Give them everything I can right up front. And so I prepare a very thorough complaint. I prepare a very thorough lawsuit to file. I also prepare an immediate motion to recognize the civil rights of the church. And before I file it, I serve them with a complaint and I take it to the municipality. I say, here, I want you to consider just agreeing to this. And if you go to the municipality, I think you're surprised after a lawsuit has been filed and you've, you've laid out in thorough uh, and excellent way what the law requires, how often municipalities agree to this because this allows you to, uh, allows them to avoid, uh, further litigation and allows them a chance to save face as well. So did Johnson... Uh, Rhode Island agree to your motion right away? 
No, they did not. In fact, this was surprising. This was one of the most egregious cases that I've ever seen. And uh, initially, they you know gave me some assurance that they wanted ultimately to work things out. But I was discouraged when they didn't agree to an order. I wanted an immediate order. And your order would have provided for what? This church is free to worship on Sunday. It's a simple order, and it's one that I, I can usually convince most municipalities not to fight me over. Because the law is fairly clear, and the law is strong. And so I want the municipalities to have the shot to agree. And so they, when they didn't agree, I was a little discouraged. But uh, part of it is I think God wanted to do something bigger. You say God wanted to do something bigger, and I see a twinkle in your eye over there. What did God do in this case? Well, after they didn't agree to an immediate order, um, in a, just an unknown and unheard of way, the court, on its own, realized that the complaint was filed and immediately ordered the parties to have a settlement conference in Providence, Rhode Island. How long does that usually take before you see a settlement conference? Uh, usually not. It's well into the process. You're going months into the case before the court decides it's going to set up a settlement conference. But we are thankful that the court in Johnston, um, the district court in Providence, Rhode Island, ordered us to go to the settlement conference. And the municipality, I think, wanted ultimately to resolve this. And so they were also encouraged that both sides were going to have to sit down. And so immediately I was able to tell the pastor, I said, the court's taking this seriously, we're taking this seriously, and we're going to push for that order. Now, when you uh, traveled out to Rhode Island, uh, what happened at that point? Well, when we went out to Rhode Island, I I made sure to tell as many people as I could, look, pray for us. Pray for us. Because in as much as this is a legal battle, it's also a very spiritual battle. And I would like to just, you know, I'll share with um, w- just with the audience a little bit more about what actually happened. Due in, in large part because of the prayer support, support we received for the firm and for the church. Uh, and so this is Lawyers for Jesus Radio, uh, listening to the <laughs> attorneys with Malcolm Baker. My partner, Rich Baker, and I are talking about a case that uh, we just filed last week. Um, or did we just resolved last week? And so we'll get into that. Rich, do you have any other questions? Oh, I have so many questions. All right, so you get to the uh, courthouse. I understand it was during the snowstorm that you had to fly out of here and your flights were delayed. You finally get there. But before that happened, you received something here at our office, didn't you? I did. Uh, it was, it was, I knew that the case was racially charged. And Tuesday before I flew out last week, um, I received a letter. And what was in that letter? It was an anonymous letter, but it was a letter that had a point. And it was a letter from a resident, uh, presumably of Johnston, but may have not have been. And it was the most vile letter I've ever read. It was a letter uh, sent to intimidate me and the church. And it was very racially derogatory and racist, full of vile remarks about how uh, this congregation is not welcome and they're not welcome because of the color of their skin. And that uh, me as a Chicago lawyer should know that. And uh, there was an implicit threat in the letter. And so I received that uh, basically on the eve of my trip out there. And, and what did you do with that letter? Well, I did it, did with it just what the municipality's attorney did with it as well when we received it, because I informed them of this, is uh, we provided that letter to the FBI and the Department of Justice, and they uh, were going to follow up on it. Um, but it's in under, under that context uh, that the church was the suffering. I mean, I, I couldn't, again, this is 2016, this is the United States of America, and it's, it's Rhode Island. Um, and so I also took the letter, and when we went in uh, to the settlement conference uh, that had been 
well prayed for and had a lot of support uh, from the congregation and others of you. Uh, we went in and I just shared the letter because I wanted everybody to know this is serious. This type of civil rights abuse cannot go on and we need to take a unified stand against it. And in that courtroom, what was the response of the judge and of the municipality? Well, I'm pleased to report that uh, last um, Thursday, uh, we ended up having a all-day settlement conference in which the church was able to share the burdens that they had suffered and we were able to demand and, and ultimately receive an, uh, the protections that we needed to free the church. So uh, on Sunday, the church had its first worship service. So, so in your settlement conference, the judge comes to you and separates you from the other side, asks you what you want, and then they go over and negotiate with the other side as well. What did you ask this judge? Well, I don't know if I can get into all of that, but uh, one of the things that I was encouraged and to how it went down is uh, after a full day of going back and forth, as Rich said, between the judge speaking with us and the town officials, uh, we were really able to just to seek the Lord. Well, what do you want, Lord? What do you want from this case? Uh, is, it, is it just the vindication? Is there something else? Well, I think what the Lord wanted is what ultimately happened is we were able to agree to a terms of a settlement in which we were going to drop the lawsuit and we were going to be free to worship. But in order to make that happen... The chief judge of the United States District Court had to leave his bench, leave his court, and come to the church. He came because he wanted to ensure that nothing was going to go wrong with our ability to get in on Sunday. So we, I went with the pastor, uh, the attorneys for the town, myself, and we met the mayor, the fire marshal, the building code official, and we all met at the property. And everybody's eyes were able to lay hold of this church, that, uh, this building. And uh, it was incredible to see as God moved and we were able to get um, the certificate of occupancy the next day. Uh, the judge made sure that nothing insignificant was going to keep this church from meeting on Sunday. And there was just a restoration of relationship. Uh, the, the mayor was able to just uh, welcome the church, apologize in some sense for how the church had been treated. Uh, the pastor was able to offer what every pastor loves to offer, the message of forgiveness. And I want to have a relationship and I w we want to be here to bless the community. And the judge was able to see uh, the, basically the fruit of, uh, of his good work as a mediator. And I was just able to see all these biblical principles come together. The principle of reconciliation, principle of justice, love, mercy. And this is, I mean, these are the types of cases that just, it's why I love practicing law. Now, as I hear you say this, I'm reminded of the scriptures in which Paul had been thrown in prison in Philippi. And then they realized that he had rights and that he was a Roman citizen, and they came and asked him to leave quietly, but he didn't. Instead, to honor the gospel, he actually litigated and said, you're going to come apologize. It seems to me something like that has happened here. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. I think a lot of pastors don't like to file suit or, or, or express their rights. But in some sense, you have to have a context. The Constitution's the law. Sometimes the, the, the authorities that, that are operating are not operating under the Constitution, and in which case you have to defend the gospel. We're Lawyers for Jesus Radio. You've been listening to Rich Baker and Noel Starrett discussing our case in King's Tabernacle, Rhode Island. This is Lawyers for Jesus Radio. You can contact us, 312-726-1243. Or or look, up, look us up on the web, M-A-U-C-K-B-A-K-E-R dot com. Gonna have to save somebody. 
Yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody. 